I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at rainnetwork.com. Welcome to the RAIN Insights podcast from RAIN Network. In this episode, David Lawrence, co-founder of RAIN, speaks with Adam Robinson as he shares his investing philosophy. Adam Robinson, the president of Robinson Global Strategies, is the trusted personal investment advisor to the heads of a select group of the world's largest hedge funds and family offices, advising on all global macro asset classes, including global equities, U.S. sectors, bonds, currencies, and commodities. He is also the co-founder of the Princeton Review. Let's listen in on this week's conversation. Adam, it's a uh, truly a very, very special privilege and honor to be able to have a conversation with you, particularly at uh, this juncture of history and uh, the fast sort of evolution of events that nobody seems to have predicted. And so although we scheduled this conversation in conjunction with the NASDAQ uh, conference that we did around scanning the horizon and helping boards and C-suites think about what might be the new and the next in terms of events and how to prepare for it. Um, it seems that um, even within the last 30, 45 days, um, things have accelerated on the geopolitical front, on um, what I'll refer to the social front, the political front, and uh, no, uh, without question, the markets as well. Um, so why don't we, uh, since I've had the benefit of knowing you for a number of years, but the audience may not have, uh, maybe we'll begin with just a little bit about your background and um, because it has been, a, for you, a very, very uh, interesting journey. And so maybe you'll share a little bit of your background with the audience. So I went to Wharton undergrad got a law degree at Oxford, and when I graduated, I thought, um, I thought I wanted to write novels, which is, of course, a natural extension of Wharton and Oxford. And, uh, and I knew if I went to uh, Wall Street or, or uh, worked at a law firm that I, I'd never find the time, just knowing how I work, which is I throw myself into whatever I'm doing 100%, that I would never find the time to write. So I thought, how do I support myself? when, um, when um, you know, when I'm writing my great American novel. And I, in my fantasy was I would tutor a couple kids a day and, um, and, uh, and then I would write the great American novel uh, with the remaining time. And that doesn't sound like such a novel career path. It's just that when I started, no one was getting tutored unless you were failing. So I'm going to date myself now, but this is 1980. And in 1980, the only kids who were getting tutored were, if you were failing French and your parents didn't want you to go to summer school, they'd hire a tutor to get your F grade up to C. But if you were scoring an A in math, and generally you were a great student, it would never occur to them to get a tutor for an edge. So with that in mind, and I, I had never really learned enough to want to tutor a lot of kids. And I, anyway, so I, I say all that, um, I thought the SAT would be a natural um, thing for me to do since I had aced it 
and uh, I could cookie cutter every every single kid. I, Emma, I would tutor the same way I would tutor David, and and so on. Anyway, um, in the in the course of tutoring my first student, I realized how to sort of beat the SAT, and this is worth hearing. This isn't gratuitous. This actually goes right to the heart of of everything that the theme that we'll be exploring here is. I noticed something peculiar, and uh, she got all of the easy questions right in every section, and all of the medium questions, and the questions were arranged in order of difficulty. But at the end of every subsection and section, she would miss every single hard question, every single one. And this puzzled me, because she'd cross off, let's say, David, she'd cross off choices A, B, and C. She gets it down to D and E, and whichever one she chose, the answer was the other one. And this puzzled me. And again, notice my words, if you're listening here, this is really key. And I said, uh, I still remember her name, Joanne. I said, Joanne, could you, I'm kind of confused here. You're getting down on the hard questions to a 50-50 shot, sometimes one in three. And whichever one you choose, the answer is the other one. I said, could you just tell me what's going through your head? Mind you, this was the first student I had ever tutored. Right? I had no idea what I was doing. But I was puzzled by this, this anomaly. And she said, well, I, I cross off the ones that I, I know are wrong. I said, good. Then what do you do? She said, well, I pick the one that I think is right. So I blurted out, oh, you've got to pick the one you think is wrong. And in that Instant, in a flash, I realized how to beat the SAT. The questions were arranged in order of difficulty, which means the obvious answer can't be right on a hard question. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a hard question. It would be an easy question. And sometimes you find yourself stuck on easy questions. You go, the answer can't be that hard. And that was my original insight. And, um, and soon I figured out other ways to answer questions when you didn't know any of the words. Like the SAT actually had to change. Anyway, year and a half, two years later, I teamed up with John Katzman and, and the Princeton Review was off and running. And, um, and so that theme of noticing something that was odd and not dismissing it, that that was where the gold was, the anomaly. And, uh, and, and I, I want to circle back to that. Plus the idea of moving in the opposite direction as a, as a first order tactic from the conventional move in the opposite direction and explore that. I don't mean reflexively to be a contrarian just to be a contrarian. Sometimes the crowd is right. But, um, but as a first order Mm, tactic moving in the opposite direction when you want to explore different results is is a, is is a, is a is a good first step oh so I, i'm sorry then then i i got into i sold my interest in the business in the early 90s i got into ai oh, wait 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 a second adam I, I i i don't want you to gloss over so for the audience uh adam is partner founded the princeton review which became one of the leading uh, tutorial platforms, uh, not only for the SATs, but I think for other mm -hmm. uh, entrance examinations. For everything. Yeah. And the point I want to make beyond it 
becoming a very successful business uh, was the fact that what Adam did was he saw something that I'll use the word the market markets weren't seen that there was a better way to understand the questions that were being put in front of the students and for them to come to the correct conclusions. So if we, I, I know you said, you know, if you sort of trained up this, the students or whatever, but in essence, Adam, I've always understood what you did here, and we're going to get on to the next iteration and the next iteration and the next iteration of your career, was you recognized that there was a way to understand what was happening, in this case, in front of students, the questions that were being posed, that most people weren't recognizing. Well, I didn't recognize that they weren't recognizing it. I just recognized that it was anomalous and could be exploited. Well, well right. In other words, wait, this is really important yeah. that not knowing something is a piece of information that you can use. Okay. The lack of knowledge, for example, a student knows, I don't know what that word means. That's a piece of information the student can actually use in practical right. ways. Correct. Okay. And then I, I wanted to emphasize that you found a way to scale your insight and what you were doing. So you could yeah. have just continued sort of one-on-one. -on -one with. So let me. So let's talk students. about that. Yeah. The the ability to scale that kind of insight yeah. and information. So um, there was a movie in the 1980s uh, called Stand and Deliver about a great math teacher, Jaime Escalante, who started off uh, as a uh, new teacher in a barrio in, in uh, Los Angeles, and um, a school where the dropout rate was, I don't know, 60-75%. And uh, because he was naive, he decides to start a course in calculus at the school. And all the other teachers laughed at him. They said, are you kidding? These kids can't add fractions. He said, yeah, I know, I know, but I think I can get them to, to learn calculus. And uh, at the end of that year, um, through his, partly it was his personality and uh, partly it was, uh, uh, um, you know, the, he, he got buy-in from these kids who would show up before school and they'd, they'd stay late and they were ridiculed by all their friends. He got 19 kids to pass the calculus exam, everyone in his class. And then the next year it was like 50 kids. Then it was like 200. And now at that school, basically everyone passes the calculus exam. They may drop out, but they know calculus. So the interesting thing about Jaime Escalante, and thank you, David, this, does has, re this has relevance to, uh, to uh, corporate America, is he could never replicate the uh, results outside the school. He could never replicate them. And so, um, which means he didn't create a system around it. You know, he didn't take the time to create a system around it. And at the Princeton Review, when we scaled Adam, the things that I had discovered about how to take a test, we had to train teachers to, to, um, to do that. And we created a script. I mean, it was as scripted as a, as a, 
uh, Chris Rock special uh, on uh, Comedy Central. Like everything was totally scripted, and because we had thousands of students, we were doing big data analysis. Again, this is the early 1980s, big data analysis and looking for patterns. So my job, and people forget this, I wasn't teaching kids things. The only way to get a kid's score to go up, to change his score or her score, is to change what they're doing. So I had, on a scale level, I had to change the way students took a test. And it's a very different task from teaching them, say, the alphabet or calculus for that matter. And so, so let's say a kid, um, I, let's say I, I, use, I taught a, I'm using a karate, I, I used a karate kid, uh, Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> He's got the crane kicky move and the, you know, wax on, wax off. And Daniel-san has to learn these techniques. And in the same way, students had to learn specific techniques and I had to know that they were going to use those techniques on the test. And so let's say, again, by way of analogy, a student missed a question. Every question that students took was tagged with the techniques that they should have used to get it right. So let's say Johnny missed a question, two questions where he could have used wax on to, to get the questions right. Then I know as a teacher, that Johnny needs to be drilled on wax on. But at the site level, back in New York, because we had sites all over the country, back in New York, we would know, wait a second, it's not just Johnny who's having trouble with waxing on. A lot of the kids in that one class are having trouble with wax on. Now the problem isn't the student, it's the teacher. And then we could even do it at a site level. Like, let's say everyone in Cleveland, say, was having trouble with wax on. Then it wasn't the teacher's problem. It was the site director who wasn't training the teachers correctly. So we had a, a dashboard, a panopticon, uh, that allowed us to see where the problems were. Um, and, for example, sometimes the problems are not always obvious, David. Um, a student could get a, a geometry question wrong, but the choice they took, they told us that they misread the question. So it wasn't a geometry mistake, it was a misreading mistake. And so that, I say all that, I doubt very few people listening are, 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 are into standardized tests and things, but that, that same mindset and big data analysis and finding where the problem was and digging deep, um, and creating systems around it, as you pointed out, David, is key uh, to the success of, uh, of uh, businesses. Uh, I, it was uh, Warren Buffett who said, um, I, I buy businesses that can be run by uh, any idiot because sooner or later uh, they will be. <laughs> and and you, so you want to create systems that work regardless of the people implementing the system, uh, the, the, right? You, because you, you, you don't have control over them so much, always. Okay, so I'm going to pull at another theme that you've touched upon. As, and this is why it's important that I, you know, we talk about your early career. You were seeing people constantly getting things wrong. Mm -hmm. And indeed, as I, let me just sort of project forward. Um, I marvel 
uh, at the end of every year, as you and I have spoken about this, mm. at the end of every year, some of the smartest people in the world uh, make their predictions for the year ahead. But what I seldom see is the scorecard mm -hmm. of those you know, predictions. And it's not because the people are not smart or paying attention or whatever. It's just that things are missed. And uh, you know, this year, uh, there are a number of things that have occurred in 2023 mm -hmm. that have been missed. We're living through the most recent things um, in terms of the Middle East. But the explosion of ChatGPT, the demise of FTX and many of the platforms. I mean, I, we could go on and on and talk about other geopolitical events. And so just to frame the conversation, Adam, it is that I, and we'll, we'll bring, you, bring people up to present time and what you're doing, but I always saw in, the, in your early career and trying to understand it, the seeds I saw was a um, sort of a constant inquiry in terms of what were people getting wrong and why, mm -hmm. and what you were seeing in the market, in the marketplace, that the market wasn't necessarily recognizing and other people were not recognizing. Okay, so wait, wait, David, so let me jump in yeah. there because there's a lot there to like right. parse out. So, it, so yes, the, the analyzing error and is, is so important. And when I say analyze, I mean to extract the lesson. And so, so, so for example, uh, CEOs, uh, board, board members, uh, uh, anyone in, a, in a, a, a fiduciary position, whether it's in, in, in corporate America or governmental, always, when, especially when you see something, because it could be personal errors, like, oh, why didn't I see that? And, and you have to deconstruct that and then, but to learn the lesson, you have to create a heuristic around that, right? You have to create a heuristic, a rule of thumb that going forward, I'm not going to make that mistake again. So I'll give you a, a humorous example. Uh, some years ago, I lived in Tribeca and, uh, and I, um, uh, in a loft, and every two, three, four months, often when seasons changed, I would forget my keys and get locked out. And it was, uh, you know, basically uh, locksmiths uh, extort, <laughs> right? It's 150 or 200 bucks for every time I forgot my keys. And, and so I put a big sign, frustrated with this, I put a big sign on my door, uh, a big, uh, uh, big white sheet in red bold letters. I said, do you have your keys? Right? That was my solution. And uh, so... Yeah, that fine. That worked for a few weeks, but it didn't actually work. Because one day I, I walked out the door and the door clicks behind me and I go, oh, wait a second, I have the keys in the other coat. So, so I made an error. I forgot keys. My solution was put a white sign, sorry, white, big white chart in front of me with red letters. And that didn't work. So underneath, I wrote down... Uh, uh, when I got back in, paid the locksmith 200 bucks. When I got back in, I put under big letters, all caps, 
in a parenthesis, no really check. And so, uh, so that that meme, no really, comma check, is now a heuristic for me. So things that I assume are true, as soon as that, this is a really important phrase I'm going to use, as soon as that feeling state arises, where I could be in a conversation with you, David, and I'm about to say something and I go, but I, I'm so certain of it, I go, but wait, no really, check. <laughs> like, check to see if you're right. And is, um, so the, the, that rule of thumb, no really, check, is triggered by the feeling state of certitude. Like, oh yeah, like I'm annoyed at the thing. Sure, I know, I got my keys, yeah, but I, would, I wouldn't check, <laughs> I wouldn't check my pockets. So I'll give you a really uh, astonishing example of this that, that anyone in, in corporate America really is so, so key. So in the summer of 2017, uh, uh, so I have to include as a parenthetical, I, 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 got, I got into AI in the early 90s. And then by, by 2000, I started becoming interested in financial markets. Anyway, in 2017, uh, one of my clients, uh, actually a number of my clients, so I advise the heads of very large hedge funds and also run a private hedge fund of my own. But anyway, in the summer 2017, this will astonish you, um, a number of my clients asked me, Hannah, why does the dollar keep going lower? And I was puzzled by their puzzlement. And then I had a, I had a hunch, and I, so I wanted to do an experiment. And David, let's come back to that, that notion of experiments. Anyway, I had a hunch about why they were puzzled. So I, uh, I, I, one of them says, so Adam, what's up with the dollar? Why does it keep going lower? Mind you, these are names, anyone listening to me right now, this is, these are names you would know. And, um, so I said, I'll tell you what, uh, let's discuss it. I, I want to show you some charts. Uh, why don't I come into your office? Great, thanks. So I show up the first guy's office and, and he said, so Adam, thanks for coming in. Uh, why does the dollar keep going lower? And I said, well, I, I, I give you an answer, but before I do, I have a pop quiz for you. He goes, sure, shoot, what is it? I said, okay, uh, US 10-year yields year to date, are they higher or lower? And he said, uh, uh, come on, they're, they're, they're higher. And, and he said it, no, he knows me and respects me and even likes me. He did, but there was a tinge of anno like annoyance, like, come on, they're higher. What, why are you even asking me that question? Now notice again the feeling state of annoyance that he, he said, come on, they're higher. That feeling state should have told him something. It told me something. So... <laughs> punchline coming up in, in 60 seconds. I said, okay, U.S. 10-year yields are higher year to date. He said, yeah, yeah, come on, they're higher. I know that already. I want to talk about the dollar. I said, okay, wait, wait, wait. Pop quiz number two, Bund 10-year yields. German 10-year yields. Uh, higher or lower year to date? Come on, Adam, what, what do you, I want to talk about the dollar. Bund yields are lower. Come on. It's kind of obvious. I said, okay. Uh, before we get to the dollar, can you pull up on your Bloomberg? Let's pull up the U.S. 10-year yields. Why don't you pull up a two or three-year chart? So he pulls up the 
US 10-year yields, again, a little bit annoyed because he wants to be talking about the dollar. And he looks at the screen dumbfounded because US interest rates were not higher year to date. They were lower. <laughs> Notice, David, they were exactly the opposite of what he knew them to be. And for me, the trigger, the, 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 the warning sign was that he was slightly annoyed with my question. He didn't say, you know, I think they're higher, but uh, let's, uh, let's check that out. Didn't occur to him, like Adam, no really, comma, check. He was slightly annoyed. And he stared at the screen like, David, it would be like if I said uh, to you, um, what's the weather like outside? You said, uh, kind of mild, Adam. Come on, why are you even asking? You put your, I said, well, why don't you put your hand out the window? And you put your hand out the window, and it's 110 degrees. You'd be stunned. So he, like, he was really mystified. I said, okay, the bund yields, you want to change your answer? He said, no, no, the, I know those are lower. I'm kind of surprised U.S. yields. Bund yields must be really low. I said, okay, pull up the bund chart. And bun yields were higher. So the reason he was puzzled about the dollar's movement was because he knew two things to be true that were exactly wrong, right? Antipodally wrong, like the opposite direction. And so Rumsfeld, right, he talks about the known knowns and the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. But there's a fourth category that's even more dangerous. It's the things you know that aren't so, right? And, and you don't bother to check it. And so that, that uh, like when, we, when you finish listening to David and I, uh, said David and me, uh, our conversation, like, no really check, check to see if you're right about things that you just assume are, are true. And the trigger will be things that are so obvious that you're almost annoyed that you'd even like, why would anyone like think to question that? That's the stuff that you got to question. Here's, here's an atomism. Whatever is obviously true is obviously worth thinking about and checking out. So anyway, so I, I know I've thrown a lot there, but these themes are so important. The notion of things that, eh, I, I know that already. So. Oh, so notice, no really check. I want to come back to that notion of creating a heuristic and a, that, that is triggered by an emotional state. And I, I say emotional state, David, because the world changes a lot, but emotional states don't. And if you learn to recognize the emotional states that precede error, eh, you can avoid them. By the way, emotional states that, 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 that precede opportunity, too, not just risk. Adam, you make a number of good points, particularly at this uh, particular time in um, world history. And so um, I'm, I'm very fond of a quote from Muhammad Ali, um, which goes to the heart of challenging your own assumptions. Uh, the person who thinks the same way they did at age 50 as they did at age 20 is wasted 30 <laughs> good years. Yeah. So just the rethinking. And uh, President Biden, just in the last uh, week, um, delivered a speech about the Middle East. And he actually cited to um, the mistakes that we made post 9-11 um, in terms of what we thought we knew and what we rushed to judgment about. So you have built a career um, 
by thinking differently and constantly challenging the assumptions of others, but your, your, your own as well. Mm -hmm. In terms of trying to understand what the world is actually telling us and what may be occurring. And the reason, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll digress one second for, the, uh, for our audience, it's, it's very interesting because uh, Adam shared with me a, a fantastic uh, experiment which often, which tells a lot about um, how we try to make decisions and how we ultimately think we know what we know. And we'll get into that in just a, a few moments. But um, people may be aware uh, the CIA uh, adopted uh, something called the Good Judgment Project, uh, which was a multi-year study, and it spun off, uh, I think, a, uh, a, a group of former agency folks that, quite frankly, we have worked with uh, who are involved in uh, good judgment and, and this notion of super forecaster. But what the CIA found was that there were people out there who obviously were not part of the intelligence community, not getting the briefings, not getting you know the intel, did not have the surveillance equipment, the, I'll call it the information flows, but ordinary people who were actually doing a very good job at predicting future events and most specifically future disasters. And uh, part of that is a little bit of the wisdom of the crowd, but part of it is the fact that people who tend to see things differently can often see things that other people are not seeing. And so, Adam, maybe you'll share with us just, you know, over the course of, you know, many, many decades now, mm -hmm. how you begin to look at the world, how you rethink what you think you know. Sure. And what are the data points that you have found most helpful mm -hmm. in advising, and I, and I, I know you're, you're I'll, I'll use the term shamelessly modest, but you have interacted with and advised some of the smartest, most important uh, decision makers, particularly uh, who are involved in our global markets. And they have always valued your opinion because you do see things differently and very often in a contrarian fashion. But why don't you share with us a little bit of your super forecasting powers, your good judgment, what feeds into it, and how you continue to think and rethink what so, you know. So I'm going to share. Thank you for that, David. And, uh, you know, I, it would take a, someone like you. Uh, to uh, force me to to think about my own thinking, and and so I'm I'm gonna provide a, a little mini tutorial and and reduce everything my my skill set to to a few basic principles that that decision decision makers can apply in their own thinking and and. Um, you know, it's uh, it's not a surprise that the CIA would have a good judgment um, um, uh, uh, project, because to have intelligence, you have to think clearly about it. And Buffett and Munger have spent, you know, a lifetime also thinking about thinking. And I've said often that um, 
that uh, people think that Buffett is a is a an investor who happens to philosophize. It's exactly the wrong way. It's the, it's the reverse. He's a philosopher who happens to invest, and and so his results in the world are are pragmatic proof that he's thinking differently from others. Right? It's a was the, the late Sir John Templeton who said, if you want to outperform the crowd, you have to think differently from the crowd. And so how do you do that? And, you know, there's sort of a, I think the whole contrarian thinking is simplistic. And, and so to think differently, you have to, cert, you have to see what others are seeing and, 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 and think something different. Or else you've got to look where they're not looking. <laughs> and that also is a... Is a, is a fertile ground for insight. So I'm going to offer four heuristics and I keep coming back to the word heuristic of, of something, a simple rule, a rule of thumb that you can apply in myriad situations. And um, as opposed to some complex, you know, I, I, I who was it? Uh, oh yeah, Ray Dalio. And I, smart guy but he wrote this big thick book hundreds of pages called principles and well you pick up a book like that and the subtext to anyone who picks it up is i'm screwed there's no way i can remember all this stuff and you know again my princeton review days teaching students i had to get them to perform better right i couldn't just lead the horse to water i had to get the horse to drink that was what i was paid to do Right? Not just teach, but to change people's scores. So here's some heuristics. One is, I think the most powerful is to focus on things that don't make sense. Anomalies. Either in your own thinking or you'll see it in the thinking of others. And often if it's, if it's, if it's others and you can see them, see their face, you'll see their face kind of scrunch up a little bit. Like, huh, that's weird. And and so, but they don't follow through on that, right? They stumble on an anomaly, and for me, that's a gold mine. And to them, they go, oh, oh well, and they move on by, and as if nothing had happened. So this notion of things that don't make sense. So I'll give you an example. Um, well, there, that um, the, the anomaly of back in mid-2017 of the dollar going lower, that didn't make sense to them. And so they were sufficiently plagued by that question that they didn't let it go. Um, but some people do let it go. They say something like this. They, don't, they won't always use the words of, that doesn't make sense. They'll say, oh, well, how much lower can the dollar go? And you, they have just told me, Adam, that it's got a lot lower to go because they're on the sidelines confused. So think about it. When, when you, I'm talking to the listener now, when you look at something and go, huh? Like something's a little weird or off. Um, it's actually, what you're actually saying is, I have a worldview, a model of the world that says that what I'm observing should be doing the opposite of what I'm observing or something very different. And people go, oh, that just doesn't make any sense. Well, no, it's your worldview that doesn't make any sense. And in science, that's called an anomaly. And if you get enough anomalies, eh, then the theory is overturned. 
but people don't do that with their worldview. And, and, and so, again, if you see the behavior of a stock um, uh, uh, um, act differently from what you would expect it to do, especially if it's wildly different, that tells you something. Um, I, I'll give a perfect example of that. Um, hold on, I've got to get the exact date. Sunday, May 1st, 2011. And uh, it's actually topical here. because uh, So Sunday night, uh, futures trading opened. And uh, um, just by way of context, gold had been soaring uh, um, in, the, in the months preceding. So had silver. And on Sunday night, there was something that occurred in, in, in Israel. And I thought, oh, gold should pop higher here. But it didn't. And in fact, started an inch lower. And so what did that tell me? It told me that something that Adam doesn't know about is making gold go lower when it should have gone higher. And I checked silver. The two of them tend to move uh, together. Um, uh, silver also was moving lower. And in fact, silver was accelerating to the downside. This is Sunday night before, you know, generally U.S. markets open. By the time the U.S. market had opened the next morning, silver was down 7%. And, and four or five days later, it was down uh, nearly 30%. That's a big move for silver <laughs> in a week. And so what, what, oh, by the way, on Sunday night, I, I warned all my clients that gold was, uh, metals were going to start moving sharply lower. And so how did I know that? I knew that because it was behaving differently from what should have happened. So what that meant was there's something I, Adam, didn't know that was more powerful, more dominant than all the logical reasons that were saying gold should have gone up. And that's true with when you release a new product or, or, or anything. If something's acting differently from what you expected, that's a piece of information. Stop right there until you have an answer. Now, by the way, I didn't know this till later, but uh, uh, um, that was the night that uh, Osama bin Laden had been uh, um, killed by U.S. forces that night. Now, in Pakistan, and, and so it was clear that the perceived risk in the world was like going to fall sharply. I didn't know that. So it also, that notion of not waiting for complete information before you act, because by the time you have the information, maybe too late, certainly in financial markets, that's true. So again, this, this notion of things that don't make sense. I'll give you another example from politics. Um, hold on, this is 20, uh, uh, 2015, Donald Trump, then a reality show uh, 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 um, um, creator uh, announced that he was going to run for the Republican uh, 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 ticket to, for, to become president. And, uh, and he holds a press conference. And the reporters are sort of openly contemptuous and laughing at him. And, and they say, so Mr. Trump, what would your first, uh, what would your first uh, act of, uh, as president, what would you do? He said, uh, well, I'm going to put up a wall between us and Mexico. And of course, 
all the reporters laughed at him and he said, wait a second, don't stop laughing yet because I got more to tell you. I'm going to get them to pay for it. And, and he was wildly derided in the press for that. And the next week when they ran the poll numbers, his approval number had shot up. And someone, I'm not going to mention this person's name, but someone who's a very sophisticated political observer in the world said, Adam, that doesn't make any sense. How, how could his approval numbers go up? And I said, uh-oh. <laughs> what that meant was Trump had tapped into something that no one had understood. That's why they were laughing at him. And it doesn't make any sense. And, and even when the poll numbers, that should, have to, that should have told everybody that there's a lot more going on than we don't know. And it's got to be powerful. Right? That's the key thing. In financial markets, I know that trend is going to power, and it was powerful enough to get Trump to the presidency. And, and it was only then that people realized that Trump had tapped into a populist groundswell and dissatisfaction with you know, politics in general and the way things were done. And, and so, again, things that don't make sense, something really powerful is going on. The second is to focus on things that are obvious. Like, oh, well, obviously interest rates, U.S. interest rates are higher. Well, really check it out. So things that are obvious. I know that things that are obvious is worth Adams investigating because I know most people will look at it as obvious and not think about it. So again, that's another source of, of insight. Um, the other is, you know, beware of the words that you use. Uh, and, 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 to, and to rethink things. You know, I, some years ago, I decided uh, as, a, as a project to teach a bunch of three-year-olds, three-year-olds, how to play chess. And, uh, and I created a huge rug that was, I, I had painted a, um, a chessboard on it. I'm saying this for a reason, and I, I um, so I, I think, okay, I've got to, and each of the kids was a piece. I had like not, I didn't have a 32 kids. I had like 17. They actually showed up. I was having the time of my life. Anyway, I was thinking to myself, what would be the easiest piece to explain the movement of? And I thought a rook. So I said, a rook moves in a straight line. And I remember to this day, this many years ago, this little girl, Layla, said, mind you, she's three years old. She said, what's a line? And it was like a slap in the face to me. I thought, oh my gosh. <laughs> she knew, of course, what a line was. And so did I. But I, I meant the line in it. Because a bishop also moves in a straight line. Yeah. Right? And, and so, so that, that idea of, of the words we use. And it sounds like, here's a piece of advice. I think every you know, board of, every, every company... Anyone who runs anything should have a mathematician on their staff. And I say that not because of lines and stuff, but in mathematics, you really have to know define things. And explain your thinking to the mathematician, and he or she will ask you questions. You go, oh, gosh, I didn't think that went out at all. <laughs> because in the effort to explain it to the mathematician with the questions that he or she is going to ask you, you realize, oh, 
I have to think about this a lot more deeply. Um, so here's an example in, in financial markets. People think bonds are safe havens, right? 60-40 portfolio construction, which is one of the dumbest concepts ever. So bonds are not safe havens. They're safe havens from deflation. <laughs> they're not safe havens from an inflationary environment. In fact, they're the worst things to own. And, and so, but people have forgotten about that, right? Over, over, um, over the last, you know, what, how long, have we, let me see, interest rates peaked back in what, 81, 82, something like that. We had four years of declining interest rates. People forgot, oh yeah, interest rates can rise. We can have inflation. They forget that, which is another source, by the way, of, of ideas, is to go back to the past and look at things that had been dismissed and used to be done, but now the situation is different. Um, it occurs to me, another example, I want to jump, just jump back just for a sec to things that don't make sense. I, I was on a stage, shared a stage with uh, Sam Zell, right, the late uh, real estate uh, genius investor and uh, what a character he was. And, and we were talking to the audience, very sophisticated investors, and, and uh, we got onto the theme of things that don't make sense. And he, I said, I gave a couple examples and he gave one that I thought was kind of cool. So he's reading the paper, uh, uh, Chicago Tribune, which he owned at the time. And uh, he's reading the paper and he sees that uh, one of the reporters has done a story and um, Starbucks had opened up in Mongolia. So I just dropped the mic there, Mongolia. And this is some years ago, and he's reading this and going, what the heck? Starbucks in Mongolia? That so didn't make sense to him, to his worldview. And he knew intuitively, I gotta go to Mongolia and see for myself. Because he knows if he asked someone, why is there a Starbucks in Mongolia? Whatever they told him, would would miss what was actually going on. So he goes to Mongolia, charters a jet, flies to Mongolia, and looks around and discovers China's opened up huge copper mines and other kinds of mines. And he realized, oh my gosh, China's gonna go in for a big uh, infrastructure build. So he got in on the China boom, this is right a couple decades ago, uh, before a lot of people. Why? Because he read a story about Starbucks that didn't make any sense to him. So, so uh, by the way, another uh, clever uh, heuristic that Sam Zell used, and I used also, to, he would look for legal changes. And for me, I look for rule changes. So it goes back to that theme of the words that you use and the, the language around the rules because Sam Zell knew that if there was a legal change, then all the things, a major legal change, that businesses that couldn't do things before now can, and businesses that were doing things can't do things now. So to look for, for legal changes uh, or rule changes and the words around things. I give a couple of great business examples of that. First, the first one is a sports example, actually. Um, David, the sport of butterfly was invented in the 1956 Olympics. And uh, in, uh, where was it? Uh, Hungary, I think. And uh, it was the breaststroke event. 
and the breaststroke event was won by someone swimming butterfly. Now, because <laughs> a couple of Hungarian uh, swimmers had realized there was nothing in the rules of breaststroke that required your arms to be underwater. They just had to move, um, uh, the right and left arm had to be doing the same thing, unlike, say, freestyle. So they changed breaststroke to butterfly. Then, of course, they had to start a whole new, uh, whole new uh, sport, uh, sorry, a whole new event, butterfly. Uh, who was it? Uh, shoot. Oh, yes. In the 1970s, David, there was, a, a, there was a tariff imposed on the U.S. importing of jeans from abroad. US, there was a tariff because U.S. industries, I guess, jean companies, whatever, they had imposed, they got Congress to impose a tariff. And uh, so he wanted to import jeans. So what does he do? He doesn't look at the rules on the tariff because he's screwed on jeans. What he does look for is what things are there no import restrictions on? And he discovers leather goods. Then he looks up at the requirements to be a leather good. And as long as any piece of an item or a good had leather on it, for that statute, it was deemed a leather good. So <laughs> he told his suppliers to put leather tags on every one of the jeans. So now he's not importing jeans, he's importing leather goods. So that was a creative solution there. Um, and again, thinking differently. And, and notice that he flipped it. He didn't think, okay, how can I get this changed for jeans? That how can I get jeans to be called something else? And so again, language use, we talked about flipping things, things that are obvious. And I think you find a lot of ideas, certainly for me, is outside whatever the domain I'm analyzing. For example, in financial markets, what I do is, uh, is basically I, I don't use anything that I learned at Wharton, which, by the way, I loved Wharton, great school. Um, but all markets are nothing more than the expression of the collective thinking about the future. And, and so who was it? Oh, yes, John Maynard Keynes. He said, successful investing is anticipating the anticipation of others. And so how do I know what others are going to do, right? How can I anticipate what they're going to do? Almost like a game of rock, scissor, paper. And you asked me that at the beginning, David. And the thing is, I don't know what other people are going to do, but I know who does. So uh, this is a quick primer on Adam investing is, is to, if we divide up the world into five groups of traders, stock traders, bond traders, uh, metal traders, oil traders, and currency traders, I say those groups because uh, unlike, say, traders in pork bellies, those five groups deal with the economy. So most of the time, those five groups, they're all looking at the world, trying to make sense of the world. And most of the time, they agree. Like, again, if I ask people, I'm looking out the window today in New York, it's a, it's a mild uh, fall day. Most people would say it was a mild day. And no one's going to say it's freezing, and no one's going to say it's scorching. Most people are going to agree it's a mild day. So what I'm interested in, and when trends change, 
is when one group of those traders has a divergent view, begins to go, you know what, I think it's actually going to be scorching tomorrow. And so I'll give a simple illustration of that. When bond traders and stock traders disagree about the future, I know the bond traders are right in early 95% of the time. And then you just create a, algorithms around that. So back, let me see, back, uh, oh yeah, yeah. In December of 2015, Janet Yellen decided to raise interest rates for the first time in a decade, right? And, and I told my clients that uh, tenure yields were gonna plummet in December 2015. And they said, Adam, that doesn't make any sense. She just raised interest rates, they're going higher. I said, yeah, yeah, but take a look at what metals are doing. So copper was um, getting dumped and gold was being bought up, Cop and copper divided by gold in, um, in deflationary regimes um, is, a, is a, an outstanding leading predictor of interest rates. And copper over gold was at uh, multi-year lows, the same time Janet Yellen thought interest rates should be higher. And sure enough, seven months later, in July, July of 2016, the 10-year yield had plummeted to then new all-time lows. And so it's not, David, that I, Adam, knew. It's just that I knew to watch metal traders who are better at predicting interest rates than the Fed. So I want to jump in, Adam, because you've shared with us uh, a number of data points, not the least of which is to ignore history is to do so at your own peril. Mm. And um, I'm reminded, as you were just with the Sam Zell story, but some of the other points, I, I can't help but be reminded of the uh, observation by Marshall McLuhan, which hmm. has been misinterpreted and misused, <laughs> but the medium is the message. Mm. And so let's, let's take the story about Zell and, and uh, Starbucks in Mongolia. Mm. The message the medium being Starbucks is opening in Mongolia, but the message was not about coffee sales in Mongolia, but it was about why it was there and why caffeine and coffee consumption was rising. What else was happening in Mongolia? Exactly. What was it saying? Wait, wait, I can I just say real quick, because I want yeah. to jump into that notion of what else don't we know? Right. So when yields went negative, right, when around the world, right, first in Japan, then in uh, Switzerland, and then in Germany, when interest rates went negative, that should have told everybody, not just on Wall Street, but in corporate America, what else don't I know about the world? Because right. in... In no world that I know, we must be in wonderland, right? If interest rates could be negative, then anything is possible, right? Anyway, so I just wanted to say that. And, and um, you know, let's take another, I'll call it, um, event in the world from not so long ago. Do you remember uh, there was a time when people were supposedly paying you to take oil? Oh, sure. And that was in April of uh, 2020. Right. Uh, 20. Sure, it went right. negative. And um, 
What, what was that actually saying about the market? What was that saying about the future, uh, et cetera? And you know, part of this is to understand history, but to your point, and this, this is that looking at an event and saying, okay, the event is the message, is a very significant error in how we think about the future. The question, at least I'm, I'm hearing you say, is what else is happening that is explaining that particular event? Well, wait, I didn't say, I, well, we have to be precise, David, because yep. what, what would explain that event isn't yet clear and may not be, you may have to act before you get the clarity. I understand that. I understand right. that. Yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. But, not, but I'm, I'm talking about looking at something not in isolation. This is what I've, you know, yes. I've learned from you over the years and trying to dissect it and understand what it is telling us and what else is happening. It, something aberrational is going on. It's not, that's not in a vacuum. Donald Trump, I'm, I'm not going to get into the politics. Donald Trump is gaining momentum in the polls. Mm -hmm. what, what, what is explaining that? Okay, what is explaining that? Can I? I want to add yeah. in a, a slight, a, a, a corollary to that is what else don't I know about the world? Yes, yes, yes. Right. Yes. That's the key question. That's, right. Right. I, in other I, words, that that's the catalyst to to. I was to using throw that. I was mm. using that interchangeably. Okay. Yeah. What else is happening in the world that I don't know about? Okay. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's uh, just an, an incredible, insightful thing. And there's also, and I've, you know, we've we've spoken about this, a sense of you haven't mentioned this particularly, but a sense of humility around hu human events and world events. Mm -hmm. That um, one of the great fallacies in, and I want to now work that into the the CIA experiment that you shared with me many years ago. But this notion of overconfidence and this notion of humility or the lack thereof around what's happening, uh, what we th that we somehow do understand what's going on or that we understand what's going to happen in the future. And a, a comment that I've shared with many people, Adam, um, which is interesting because we, you know, as we go into an election cycle, whether it's yearly, you know, every mm. two years, four years, six years, what, whatever it is, that the people who are running for these offices, there's the office that they run for, and there's the office that they inherit. Mm. And I, I sort of came to, you know, begin to think about this. President Obama um, did not, when he was running for president, was not running to help the nation recover survive a global financial crisis. But that was the office he inherited. President Bush wasn't running to manage the country and beyond with the 9-11 crisis. Mm. President Biden has inherited, you know, inflationary period and invasion of the Ukraine. And so as I think about, you know, what I'll refer to as having a sense of humility, but, but the points you are making about how to think about the events and how to think about what might be yet to come. These are no less qualities that I have now started to think about that I would hope um, are resident in the, in, in the people that are running our country.
country, the world, our corporations, so, etc. So I'll, let me pause there with just that point. So the, let me share, a, I think, one of the genius uh, uh, business decisions ever, which uh, you, the listener, will be able to apply in, in running your companies and advising those who run those companies. And, and um, uh, 90 years ago, Wallace Carruthers, who was the chief genius uh, chemist at DuPont, basically made DuPont, but he was a chemist, and he runs into the chairman's office, uh, Lamont DuPont II, he goes, look what I invented. And, uh, and he had created nylon. Nylon. And, uh, and Lamont DuPont II is like, oh, we're going to make billions on this, billions of dollars. This is great. And, um, and by the way, it was, it was a, a, a fortuitous timing because this was right before we were about to go to war with Japan. And Japan supplied the silk that made parachutes. And all of a sudden, the military, as well as you know, women in nylon, wearing nylons, nylon was the first completely new synthetic uh, fabric. And he knew it was going to make billions. This was the decision, this was the genius decision. He, he immediately sets up a separate division. They didn't have the term skunk works back then, but that's, and he said, guys, your job is to put nylon out of business. Think about that. He knows I'm going to make billions on nylon, and he sets up another division to put nylon out of business. Why did he do that? Because he knew all his competitors were going to be trying to put nylon out of business, and he wanted to own the replacement. <laughs> and and like that's such a, a jujitsu, you know, Bruce Lee like kind of move. And and so. In anticipating what your competitors are going to do, why don't you do it internally? You could set up your own division. This is beyond red teaming, right? It's not just like devil's advocate. How are our competitors thinking? It's well, set up something else. Compete with yourself internally. And that'll give you a great insight into your competitors. And if it doesn't, you may come up with a better product. And um, so, like, imagine if Elon Musk, and who knows, maybe he has, uh, I'd like you to come up with a car that's better than the Tesla, and internally, it doesn't rely on batteries, or whatever it is, you know, and something better. Or I want you to improve the, the, the combustion engine so that it's better than ours. And may as well, because, you know, Ford and, you know, all the other car companies, they're going to be doing that. So, you know, the best way to figure out what your competitors are doing is to do it. Compete with yourself internally. And um, anyway, so that's just, um, just wanted to throw that out about what your competitors are doing and trying to anticipate well, but it, them. But, but what you're also really saying is, um, how should I say, forget the lesson about complacency. Mm. Is don't rely. You may not know what you think you know. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, uh, in in the remaining time we have, Adam, I want to, and this is going to be a continuing dialogue with you, so I'm forewarning you. Okay. Uh, okay. So, but you shared with me a number of years ago, 
um, a very, very, uh, I thought, important lesson. Yes. About a CIA experiment. Well, well, that had, was it, it wasn't a CIA experiment. Uh, it was cited in their manual, the correct. experiment. I'm sorry. I apologize. Yeah. Poor choice of words. But, but an experiment that the CIA uh, re has relied upon and puts into their manual, which mm -hmm. I think has uh, tremendous, uh, tremendously broad importance yes, and implications for decision makers, no matter where they are. Yeah. But certainly C-suites and, and corporate boards, hence the value of having you as part of this NASDAQ um, series. And so maybe I'll, I'll allow you to basically unpack sure. this and we can talk about the lessons. Sure. So uh, in the 1970s, a psychologist named uh, Paul Slovic, and by the way, among psychologists, he's on the same level as Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel. Like, yeah, they're buddies, right? That's, the, that's the, Paul Slovic has spoken with you know, awe and reverence. Anyway, so Paul Slovic uh, in the 1970s gets a group of, uh, of uh, a dozen uh, horse handicappers. He says, I want to see how good you guys are. And uh, right, professional horse handicappers who make their living, so we know that they're good, make their living um, betting horses. And uh, those of you who don't know, um, you have to do at least Right, the the vig you have to be, just because the uh, the spread you have to do better than ten percent just to just to break even, right? Anyway, so the the experiment that he conducted was fascinating, and it has applications as you say, David, way beyond uh, uh, horse handicappers. So for anyone who makes decisions about the world, and so um, he starts off. And he gives each horse handicapper any five pieces of information about the horses in this race that they want to. And he, he did, uh, uh, he, he had them handicap 40 races and uh, uh, in four groups of 10 races. And the first 10 races that they were handicapping, by the way, all 40 races had been run previously. So he had the data on them. And he stripped the horses' names, and and the, and the tracks and everything. So they, the the handicappers only saw the numbers, right? That's all they saw, and so they didn't see the name of the jockey or anything. They just saw the numbers. And each handicapper was allowed in round one, any five pieces of information that handicapper wanted. So you, David, might want the weight of the jockey and you might want uh, the horse's uh, speed rating on this, or you know, at the age of the horse, the, the, and you would get those five, five pieces. And Adam, another horse handicapper in the study, I, I, I would get my five pieces. So whichever five pieces you wanted. And as it turns out, David, there were an average of 10 horses in every race. So the odds of winning by chance are 10%, right? And with five pieces of information, they were 17% accurate, which is pretty good. It's 70% better than expectation. That's pretty darn good. But he also did something else. He said on a scale of uh, zero to one, rate your chances, or zero to 100, uh, rate your chances of 
that you're correct in your assessment, like your level of confidence. And calibrating confidence, you talked about overconfidence, David. It's so important, right, to calibrate on your confidence level, right? Investors learn to do that because then you calibrate the size of your trade based on the conviction level. Anyway, they were 19% confident, and that's extraordinary. They were 17% accurate, and they were 19% confident. And, and, and in psychology terms, uh, their confidence was very well calibrated, like almost to the decimal. That's extraordinary. In other words, they were as confident as they should have been. Then for round two, the next 10 races, they were given 10 pieces of information, and then 15, and then 20. And by round four, what was their accuracy? It had flatlined at 17%. <laughs> it was no better with uh, 5, 10, 24, 40 pieces of information than it was at 5. Mind you, think about it. The accuracy was good, but think about the time and the cost in acquiring eight times as much information. And the accuracy didn't improve, but this was the dangerous thing. Their confidence had shot up from 19% to 31 they were now almost twice as confident as they should have been, even though their accuracy was no better. And that's very dangerous. In investing terms, you're gonna go bankrupt because you're twice as confident, you're gonna be making bets twice as big as you should make them. And so what does that tell us? It tells us this. Oh, you know, I wanna say two very important things here before we leave, so is, more information beyond a certain point, beyond a few pieces of information, all the new information is just feeding your confirmation bias. You've already decided. And the more information I give you, you're just gonna cherry pick that information for more conviction around, yes, I, I'm, it's, a, you know, it's a, a, a Swan Lake is the one who's gonna win this race. I'm sure of it. And, Anyway, um, so more information actually beyond a certain point is actually feeding, feeding confirmation bias. So this is um, another very powerful question to anchor on is this. What would I need to see to change my view? By the way, that's a question as a decision maker you should pose to absolutely everyone who advises you. So... I'm not in the Oval Office, but if I were advising Biden and somebody said, I don't think we should do this, he'd say, the question he should pose to that person, say, okay, what would you need to see to tell you we should do it? And if someone advised you, I think you should uh, go long um, wheat futures. And here's why, great. The question to pose them is, what would you need to see to tell you we should be shorting wheat futures. And nine times out of 10, that they will be flummoxed. They won't know how to respond because they don't think like that. So, so, so yeah. it's anti-confirmation bias. You're setting up before you make the decision, before you commit, because then there's, you know, some cost, like all these biases jump in. Is what would I need to see to tell me we were wrong and should pull the plug on this project? You've so got to do that before you, before you make the 
the investment. So, Adam, I feel like we're delving into the land of David Halberstam and the best and the brightest, and oh, you know, and what yeah. they and what they give um, Nobel prizes for to the behavioral economists. And I just I want to emphasize this because very often I look, and I've been privileged to be at Goldman Sachs and currently working with some incredible companies and government agencies, that there is this notion that they want to take in as much information as possible. Mm-hmm. And the notion that one can, I'll call it, you know, almost deceive oneself by being convinced that your opinion is, you should have a high degree of confidence because you have taken in so much information that you have forgotten to ask certain questions, forgotten to remember that more is not necessarily better, it just feeds into your confidence level as opposed to informing the judgment, not recognizing your inherent biases mm-hmm. of looking for confirmation for the opinion you already had and, and thereby viewing the additional information in whatever way. I don't I don't want to revisit history, but I'm going back to President Biden's speech from just a uh, you know, a little more than a week ago, mm. and uh, the decision to go into Iraq. Wait, did I hear you correctly? Did you say Iraq? Did I miss something? What the heck? Into Iraq, Iraq. When we ah, I missed that. Ah. Invaded Iraq. He he acknowledged um, that mistakes were made in the aftermath of 9/11. Oh and wait, it, you didn't mean Biden. You meant Bush. No, I no no. Biden acknowledged. Oh, I see. I the, see what you got. The mistakes yeah, yeah. we made, and and you know, President Biden at the time he was Senator Biden voted for it. Okay, so it's it's you know these are opportunities to learn. But the reason I wanted you know in particular this is this is interestingly an experiment that, as you say, has been incorporated into the CIA training manual. Mm-hmm. Is that there's some really very lasting lessons that we easily can forget, and boards that are called upon to make all sorts of decisions about company direction and, and the hiring of successors and mergers and new markets that companies are entering and then there's, God forbid, there's a government investigation and, and such. Mm-hmm. And, and so the last point you make, which, which was not one that was made um, in, in that experiment, is what would it take, what would you need to see to come to a different conclusion than the one you're holding on to? Oh, by the way, the opposite conclusion, that really forces things. Yes, yes. Right? Okay, I, I was being charitable, a different yeah. conclusion. Okay? Yes, yes, yes. And, and so um, these are lessons, obviously you, you use the word investments uh, because um, in large part that's where you focus in terms of the advice you give. But again, these are lessons for all decision makers. I would even argue, let's take it down to the level of families as parents make decisions. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, these are very, very important. And uh, and in just sort of, first of all, thank you for the time today. We're going to continue this conversation. But I would be significantly remiss if I didn't mention two things. One. Uh, the audience might be a mistake under a mistaken impression that you just play chess with three-year-olds. Hmm. You've played chess with grandmasters. Okay, so I want the audience to... Well, yeah, well, Bobby Fischer was my mentor yes, back in the yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, again, you're shamelessly modest, and I'm going to tell a personal story, which you may forget. 
Um, but I won't mention the company name. Uh, but there was a um, company based in China that was in the student tutorial oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. business. And um, I remember our bankers were meeting with the heads of the company and they were still kind of deciding on the bank. And, and as I delved into what their business was, and obviously a good part of this was to help students in China get admitted to U.S. schools. And I saw the materials. And so I said to the bankers that um, they might have, have an interest in meeting a friend of mine, uh, Adam Robinson, who was the co-founder and co-head of the Princeton Review. Okay. And uh, so the bankers, uh, they, were, they were a little bit like, it's kind of off-center, David, I'm not sure how that. I said, well, listen, you guys are going for dinner, and you know, Adam said he's available, so could we, uh, if you think it would be helpful, just mention it to him. Well, the heads of the company immediately jumped at the opportunity. And I still remember that moment, Adam, uh, at the restaurant. Um, you probably don't remember it. And again, you're, you're somewhere. It's coming back to me. Overly yeah. modest. But you walked into the room and uh, the heads of the company with their interpreters quickly um, asked the investment bankers to leave the table. And they, <laughs> so you could be seated with them. <laughs> <laughs> to, to meet you, and they peppered you with all sorts of questions, yeah. and 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 you remarked at them. Uh, I, I said it at the end of the evening. I, you know, yeah, it was only about an hour or so for the uh, dinner, and you know, you answered their questions, <laughs> and I said, Adam, they really, they really seemed to know what they, you know, what to ask you, and and, and knew so much about your materials. And you did mention, you know, of course they did. They already stole my materials. So, <laughs> so I just, your, your reputation, you know, transcends oh, uh, around this. So I, I just want to tell that story. Listen, Adam, thank you for the time. We'll um, obviously uh, continue the conversations. And I'll particularly be interested in uh, continuing the conversation as various events in the world uh, develop. But you know what, thanks. David? Yeah. Just as my old uh, tutor days, uh, I'll write up a little uh, cheat sheet, a summary. You can. That would be great. I was like going. I, I was going to ask you offline. Let's. Yeah. Sort of. I, I don't want to call it the uh, Ten Commandments of Decision Making. Um, yeah. Yeah. It would be great. Adam, thank you again, as always, to be continued. Always a delight. Okay. Okay. This is the Rain Insights podcast, which is part of the Rain Insights series comprised of both virtual and real world events, offering unique practical perspectives from Rain's leading experts in risk management. To learn more, please visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R A N E network.com. Thanks for listening.